Welcome to week 23 of 60 Weeks, 60 Books. This week, we will join Jonathan Raban on his epic trip from Minneapolis to New Orleans in a 16-foot skiff on the Mississippi. The very first travel books I read were Gerald Durrell's wonderful, although no doubt hyperbolic, accounts of his travels in Africa and South America to collect animals. I remember my mother getting very cross when I was nine or ten because I spent the money intended for our supper on copies of the Baffert Beagles and Three Singles for Adventure. As a teenager, Eric Newby's A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush made me hoot with laughter, and I also thoroughly enjoyed Fred Burnaby's A Ride to Kiva by a 19th century spy. These were wry, humorous accounts of Englishmen abroad in exotic locations, full of misunderstandings, misadventures, and a fair bit of mockery of the idiosyncrasies of Johnny Foreigner. Rabban certainly explores the weirdness of Middle America in Old Glory, but the book is meditative, and Rabban directs as much forensic examination of flaws at himself as he does at the Americans he meets. Old Glory held a different appeal to me, because even though I had lived in the US from the age of two, and my father continued to live there until his death in 2013, at that stage I had hardly seen anything of the country. We explored little of the US, my father preferring holidays in Europe, my mother eager to see Spain and her parents. By the time I reached my early 20s, I knew Washington DC, some corners of Maryland and Virginia, and had visited Massachusetts once and New York twice. Of course, I had read many books set all over the US, watched countless hours of American TV and cinema, So I had an image of what it was like, especially that mysterious bit in the middle full of televangelists and small towns where everyone knew everything about each other. The land of Footloose, Greece and the Breakfast Club. But I had never set foot there and my grand plans were focused on exotic adventures. My great dream, unfulfilled still, was to travel the length of the Trans-Siberian Express. I came to buy Old Glory in my first year at work. When I graduated, my first job was in the city as a graduate trainee in an organisation that has morphed into what is now the Financial Conduct Authority. I took the tube every morning to work, arriving at Cannon Street around 8.45 and joining the flow of robotic minions walking along St Swithin's Lane, across Lombard Street and Cornhill to the Royal Exchange. As a graduate trainee, I learned a great deal, but spent much of my day confused and baffled. I photocopied stuff, took notes, tried desperately to keep myself awake by mainlining the avocado and bacon sandwiches and Kit Kats purchased from a tea lady who circulated at 10 and 3 every day with her trolley. And at lunchtime, I would escape to a bookshop in Leadenhall Market. I can't remember its name then, but it morphed into Otakas in 1987 and is now a Waterstones. And there, one lunchtime, I picked up Old Glory. Raban was born in 1942, the same year as my father, and was raised in Norfolk. As a seven-year-old, he read Huckleberry Finn and thereafter was entranced by the idea of the Mississippi. He studied English at Hull and initially worked as an academic, first at Aberystwyth and then at the University of East Anglia, back in Norfolk, teaching alongside Malcolm Bradbury in the creative writing department. But he was restless, 
and went freelance in 1969, keeping body and soul together in London with book reviews, writing his first two books in the 1970s and using an advance for Old Glory to head to Minneapolis in 1979 to escape London and a marriage that both seemed to him stale and empty. The book opens on Labor Day weekend, with Rabban driving across Wisconsin towards Minneapolis, his starting point for the long journey down the Mississippi to New Orleans. Thanks to the holiday, the roads seem empty and the towns he passes through have a sleepy Sunday air. Then he arrives in Minneapolis and finds himself plunged into the ugliest aspect of America. The thoroughgoing charmlessness of this five-mile strip of junk food, porno movies and the kind of motels where you expect to find blood running down your shower curtain. As I prepared this particular podcast, I was absolutely unable to resist quoting Rabban at length. His writing is so pointed and so perceptive. There is a constant tension throughout the book between his dreams of long, deep solitude. Everything would be left to chance. One would try to be as much like a piece of human driftwood as one could manage. And the reality of America, with the garrulous, self-absorbed characters Rabban encounters in restaurants, bars, at the state fair in Minnesota, where he finds himself half-suffocated by an abundance of food and flesh. When Rabban finally finds the river, it is far from the magnificent rolling wonder that he had envisioned. Instead, it is poor, schooled, shriveled, a sluggish canal. Rabban hires a 16-foot motorboat for his journey down the river. Just a mustard-coloured shell of aluminium related to some new efficient brand of non-stick saucepan, in his words. He tests his craft on the river with the owner of the boatyard, Herb, who gives him a crash course in the dangers of the river, floating logs, wing dams, piles of bridges, buoys or buoys, and the huge fleets of tens of barges that would throw up enormous wakes, eddies and undertows that could suck a boat right under. He begins to master steering his small vessel and sets off, encountering weekenders escaping from their humdrum lives, sampling different churches, the Knights of Columbus, the American Legion, and run-down shacks selling coffee and snacks. In 1979, the flight from small towns across America had already begun, and Rabban meets men and women whose children have fled for bigger cities, bigger jobs, and different landscapes. He mourns the spirit of inspired arrogance that had sought to build humming 19th century metropolises across the wilderness, choosing, as he describes them, infested bogs and impenetrable bluffs as the sites for what were intended to become bustling main streets. Rabban is not impressed by most of the people he meets, such as Bob and Beverly, denizens of Winona. She looked like a retired lady wrestler, And Bob is both a radio ham and physically a real big ham. Only a cartoonist could have managed the bell-shaped curve of his basic construction. The couple must have had 600 pounds of flesh between them. Bob has nicknamed Beverly Vicious, but assigned her room for the night, Rabban discovers a leather-bound book on her bedside table, full of quotations she has written out by hand from the Gospels, 
consoling passages and complex explorations of St John and St Paul, a hidden doorway into a more complex personality than Rabban had originally imagined. Bob turns out to be a man who, if he is still alive 40 years on, is surely a Trump voter in his furious rejection of all the official ties and responsibilities of organised society. Resentful of every tax dollar taken from him, only really happy shooting moose with an empty dream of a wilderness and freedom that have never really existed in the United States. Rabban does discover both kindred spirits and the true spirit of the Mississippi early on. His decision to navigate his way in his tiny boat is the right one. In a bigger, safer vessel, he might have found the river as others had predicted, samey and boring, but his daily wrestles with currents and meanders, complex, devious, and only 150 miles into his journey, he is, as he says, in the river's grip. In Prairie Doshin, looks like Prairie du Chien when you see it written down, he meets Rex Caber, who runs a restaurant, is happily married to Joanne, and whose hobby is photographing the water, frozen, still, reflective, as well as rough and wild. The Cabers take Rabban to church with them to hear Father Finugan preach with a harsh, rigorous theology that has emptied his church and sent the flock to the rival, gentler arms of St Gabe's. The America that Rabban uncovers is already well on its way, even in 1979, to the toxic partisan politics that are today bringing red and blue states to a state of intense resentment and rage. A candidate for mayor in a small declining town identifies the educational deficit in the basic understanding of the rights and responsibilities of being a citizen that was already well underway in the 1970s ably assisted by those televangelists who thrived despite numerous financial and marital scandals that emerged during the course of the 1980s. Raised on wisecracking, witty, black-and-white movies with stars like Astaire, Bacall, Bogart, Tony Curtis, Catherine Hebben and Ginger Rogers, Betty Davis, Hedy Lamarr, I found it hard to get my head round the relentless procession of mockable men and women that Rabban seemed to encounter, most with the intellectual range of the average gerbil and, at the upper echelons, perhaps hitting the dizzy heights of the clueless Lena Lamont, the vacant platinum blonde, silent star, of singing in the rain who when she tries to say I can't stand it ends up whining I can't stand it. Over and over Rabban must explain his mission and when he does so many of the men he meets say that they wish they could do what he is doing or by the end of the book has done. But these are trapped souls confined by either the conformity of expectation that afflicts so many in America, or by their own inability to break free from a life that they have lost control of, that has ensnared them like the child catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, in what initially looks like a charming carriage, but turns out to be a cage. Finally, Rabban arrives in New Orleans, a city he loathes, then makes his way through the bayous to Morgan City and the point on the Atchafalaya River where the water is dark with peat, thickened with salt, and his boat drifts out on the tide towards the Gulf of Mexico. 
his journey is done. I read Old Glory in 1987 and loved it. I reread it almost immediately, then did not pick it up until these past weeks when it has been a joyous rediscovery of his sardonic, humorous, self-deprecating voice. When I was in my 20s, reading it for the first time, like Raban, all I wanted was to escape from London. Starting my first job felt as terrible as Wordsworth's account of the doors of the prison house closing round the schoolboy. From the big skies and open beaches of Aberdeen, I was trapped in a London where we were all on a ceaseless treadmill of commuting and playing outrageous sums for mortgages or rent. Things did improve as I switched jobs and only a few years later, I made my own first proper pilgrimage round America. Etched on my memory was my arrival in Dallas, where I knew I could not succumb to jet lag and so tried to walk away from the urban strip where my hotel stood, to stay awake. It was hard, but I landed up in the empty grounds of the state fair, guarded by a huge statue of a Native American. I wandered the dusty area, uncomprehending, until I found a steam locomotive where a group of enthusiasts were meeting. They invited me to join their lunch, which by this time had reached the dessert stage. I was offered mud pie, which came not as a slice, but as scoops from a huge tub of what absolutely did look like dirt, but proved to be more innocuously Oreos mashed with vanilla ice cream. As we chatted, they asked whether, since I lived in London, a place as distant and unimaginable to them as the surface of Mars, I might know their cousin's nephew, who also happened to live in London. Most of them had made it to Galveston or to neighbouring Louisiana. They seemed content sitting on a stalled locomotive in an empty park on a Sunday afternoon, and I too was content, having encountered on my first day of a journey that was to take me to California, Indiana, and back to Washington, D.C., my first genuine Americans of a sort that would have been entirely at home in old glory. Join me next week for a very different travel narrative, Barry Lopez's magisterial, magnificent Arctic dream.